As we look into the second commandment, we are challenged to worship the right God in the right way. If you would, follow along as I read Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. It says, Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of the heavens above, or in the earth below, or in the waters underneath the earth. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the father's sin to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you once again for the opportunity to look at your word this morning. I pray, God, that you would speak to our hearts and challenge us, Lord, with your Holy Spirit's power, and ask, God, that once again... Lord, if there are things that we need to change in our life, and our walk with you, and our relationship with you, Lord, might we be humble enough to admit it, and Lord, willing enough to change it, Lord, that we might become more like you. And I pray that you would work in our hearts this day, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. As we look at this command, it's interesting that a couple weeks ago we saw that every one of these commands that were given in the Old Testament were reiterated and paraphrased in the New Testament. So once again, as we come into this, the first commandment, as we said, lays the foundation for every other one of the commands that follow. Do not have any other gods beside me. And that is a command that rings true throughout all of our lives. Because we're often tempted to be giving into things and material things and have our focus and life centered on things that really don't come for eternity. And if if we're honest with ourselves, so much of our time revolves around the idea of getting things, being involved with things that will not last. And God's Word tells us that one day these things will be tested by fire. And we know that many of these things will not stand that test. But as we look into this second command, we're challenged to worship not only the right God, but the right God the right way. So how does this second commandment differ from the first commandment? Well, the first commandment has everything to do with worshiping the right God. And we made that very important. There is only one God, only only one God who is in heaven, who sits at the right, right uh, sits on uh, the throne of the universe, and uh, in every other circumstance, we see that throughout the book of Jeremiah, throughout the book of Isaiah, we see that there are gods who have eyes but cannot see, ears but cannot hear, mouth but cannot speak, uh, and so forth. They're not real. They're crafted by man's hands, and we're to reject every false god and every idol. As we come into the second commandment, and we understand that it has everything to do with worshiping the right way. So not is God concerned with who we worship, but how we worship as well. And that's an important thing to consider in the day and age in which we live. Because we're a people of choice. We're a people of uh, opinion and preference. And uh, so often we are void of conviction. Convictions are those things that we are willing to die for. Those are things that are based on biblical principle and we're willing to stand for them no matter what. But we live in a culture where absolutes are being diminished and preferences and opinions are being elevated. So we need to make sure that we are basing all those things on scriptural principle. So not only is God concerned with who we worship, but how we worship. And he says we may not worship God however we want. And that's really when it starts getting into our own lives and getting into our, up into our business, so to speak. And, and uh, all these liberties that we say that we have in Christ, are they funneled through the scripture? Are they funneled through the test of God's word? to see if they be right with God. So how can we explain the difference between these two commands? Well, I want to use an example that we see in Scripture. So if you would, for a few moments this morning, turn your Bibles to 2 Kings. 
2 Kings and chapter 9. And as I was reading through this this week, you have to understand this is a gruesome text. Something that we don't always understand is in Scripture. But how can we explain the difference between worshiping the right God and worshiping Him the right way? King Jehu eliminates the worship of Baal in Israel, and he did so by putting Queen Jezebel to death. How does he do this? 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 30. It says, when Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard about it, so she painted her eyes, adorned her head, and looked down from the window. As Jehu entered the gate, she said, Do you come in peace, Zimri, killer of your master? He looked up toward the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked down at him. And he said, Throw her down. So they threw her down, and some of her blood splattered on the wall and on the horses, and Jehu rode over her. I thought when I read this last week, I said, Man, I've read through the entire Bible numerous times. I don't remember how gruesome this situation was. God takes care of this situation. It says in verse 34, Then he went in, ate and drank, and said, Take, take care of the cursed woman, and bury her, since she's a king's daughter. But, but, look at verse 35, But when they went out to bury her, they did not find anything but her skull, her feet, and the palms of her hands. So they went back and told him, and he said, This fulfills the Lord's word that he spoke through his servant Elijah the Tishbite. In the plot of the land of Jezreel, the dogs will eat Jezebel's flesh, and Jezebel's corpse will be like manure on the surface of the field of the plot of land at Jezreel, so that no one will be able to say, This is Jezebel. So here comes Jehu. He walks into the land and says, Wait a minute, you cannot worship Baal. Let me just say it's not real, probably a good thing we don't have the authority to say who you're going to worship and who we're not in this day and age. Probably get us in trouble. But Jehu came in and says, you can't worship anyone else. You cannot worship Baal any longer. And the person who's up here, wicked Queen Jezebel, they throw her down, her blood splatters everywhere, they run over her and there's nothing left of her. Fulfilling scripture. And the bottom line is, he says, you are not going to serve Baal any longer. But what happens then? Uh, King Jehu then destroys the prophets of Baal. Look at chapter 10, verse 18. And you see where I'm going to go with this in just a moment. Chapter 10, verse 18. It says, Then Jehu brought all the people together and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little, but Jehu will serve him a lot. Now therefore summon to me all the prophets of Baal, all his servants and all his priests, None must be missing, for I have a great sacrifice for Baal. Whoever is missing will not live. However, Jehu was acting deceptively in order to destroy the servants of Baal. So he's further on his conquest of destroying the prophets of Baal. He's further in destroying anybody who's willing to bow to Baal. And look at verse 20. It says, Jehu commanded, consecrate a solemn assembly for Baal. So they called one. Then Jehu sent messengers throughout all Israel, and all the servants of Baal came. There was not a man left who did not come. They entered the temple of Baal, and it was filled from one end to the other. Then he said to the custodian of the wardrobe, Bring out the garments for all the servants of Baal. So he brought out their garments. Then Jehu and Jehonadab, son of Rechab, entered the temple of Baal, and Jehu said to the servants of Baal, Look carefully to see that there are no servants of the Lord here among you, only servants of Baal. Then they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. 
Now Jehu had stationed 80 men outside. He warned them, Whoever allows any of the men I am delivering into your hands to escape will forfeit his life for theirs. He is taking this serious, and when he is coming to destroy the prophets of Baal, he said, these 80 men, if any of you let any of these prophets of Baal escape, your life will be taken in exchange for theirs. He is taking it pretty serious. Verse 25, when he finished offering the burnt offering, Jehu said to the guards and officers, go in and kill them, don't let anyone out. So they struck them down with a sword. Then the guards and officers threw the bodies out and went into an inner room of the temple of Baal, and they brought out the pillars of the temple of Baal and burned them and tore down the pillar of Baal. Then they tore down the temple of Baal and made it, and made it a latrine, which it is to this day. So he goes in there, gets all the prophets of Baal. I mean, yeah, some of you are laughing. God was taking this serious, right? I mean, he gets all the prophets of Baal. And he's trying to eliminate. What's he trying to do? He say there's only one God. Only one God. And no other gods are going to be worshipped. And he brings them all together, and I don't understand all the where-tos and the where-fores and the whys and everything else, but I know this, that God, for a period of time, says, I'm going to cleanse this area. And he brings them all together, and he says, you're going to destroy them all. He brings them with the sword. They're all gone. They're all done. And they make this entire veiled temple a latrine. Amazing. But then look what happens in verse 28. Jehu eliminated Baal worship from Israel. He eliminated it all. He said, there's only one God. One God. But wait a minute. Look at verse 29. But he did not turn away from the sins that Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, had caused Israel to commit, worshiping the gold calves that were in Bethel and Dan. Well, wait a minute. I mean, he eliminates Jezebel, who's the wicked king who is promoting the worship of Baal. And then he draws all the prophets of Baal into one place and destroys all of them and the temple. Destroys all says there's only one God. Then how do you explain the golden calves? Well, interesting here. He was really turning things around, wasn't he? If King Jehu got rid of Baal worship, then what is the talk of the golden calves and Bether and, and, and Dan that caused Israel to sin? Here's an amazing thing. King Jehu enforced the first commandment, but he did not enforce the second. He was all about destroying the false gods. But he was not all about serving only one god with their hearts. You see, the golden calves did not represent false gods. They didn't represent false gods. Their intention was that the golden calves represent God. However, this is what the second commandment was talking about. No graven images. See, a calf cannot adequately represent the glory of God. And I don't care how nice and how elaborate and how ornate it may be, it cannot represent the glory that is to be given to God alone. It's one thing to say there's only one God, but this calf cannot equate to the God of heaven. Even though his heart may have been right in saying that I want something that will represent God, the only one true living God, but God says, nothing made by man's hand shall be worshipped. The first commandment forbade the false gods. The second commandment forbade false worship. No graven images. If you stick your finger there and turn back to Exodus chapter 20 just for a moment, let's read that passage real quickly again. 
Verse 4 says, Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above, or on the earth below, or in the waters under the earth. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So he says, Nothing made by man's hand shall be worshipped. You know, it's an amazing thing that in our culture people love to worship things. If you have your eyes open as you're driving down the road, you see a lot of foreign cars with little gods hanging from the mirrors, little trinkets. But we Christians, we don't do that, do we? We, do, we hang things like angels, like crosses, like little fish signs. We're no different sometimes. These things represent and are a token of our Christianity, so we think sometimes. Now I realize we're not bowing down to them, we're not worshiping them, we're not putting money at the... At, the, at, a, at a post that has like a little cross at it. But I wonder sometimes if we don't have a token of Christianity without really having a devotion to real Christianity. Um, Pastor Mike's been doing a great job the last couple of weeks talking about truth in Sunday school. We have an idea of what truth is in our minds. But truth goes beyond just information. Because God's Word says, be doers of the Word and not hearers only. And the problem is we hear truth. For so many people around the world, we hear the gospel and we say, well, I believe that. I hear the story of Christ lying on the cross. Well, I, I don't doubt that that happened. I hear the stories of, the, uh, of people who were persecuted for the faith and they say, well, that's very real. I, I get that. But that's as far as it goes. You see, it's not just enough to believe that there's a God. God's Word tells us that the devils believe and tremble. Lots of people believe information about God. Lots of people understand facts and history and information and have knowledge of a situation that took place. But it's another thing to put that knowledge in, in, into action and say, I am going to live out and be a doer of the Word and not a hearer only. And this is where he says, it's not enough just to believe that there's only one God. It matters how I worship that God. And how I worship Him is very important. So it's not about having trinkets. It's not about having a cross. It's not about having a fish sign on your car. It's not about wearing a t-shirt saying WWJD. I'm not saying all those things are bad. They are things that will sometimes lead to a conversation where we can talk about the things of Christ. But if that's all we do, we're missing the point of what Christianity is all about. You see, these Jehu goes in here and he says, No false gods. Even the calves represented the God of heaven. But he said, no graven images. He's not only concerned with what we have as our God, but how we worship that God. No graven images. So the command, as we see it, no carved images. We said last week that anything we give more time, attention, or energy to has the potential of becoming an idol in our life. In Leviticus chapter 26, verse 1, explains an idol to be anything crafted by a tool, regardless of what it is made of. You see, craftsmanship, our art, was not forbidden, but however, worshiping those finished products was forbidden. And he talks about that pretty clearly in Exodus chapter 31. Worshiping anything made by man's hand is sinfulness. And for a moment, as I reminded us last week, there's a lot of things that we as Americans worship. Sometimes we worship being in America. We're better than everyone else. We worship the fact that maybe we are white and we're better than them. We worship the idea that we have a better job than so-and-so, therefore I'm of a higher clout, a better position in life. 
We kind of worship the idea that I drive a nicer car than so-and-so, so that makes me just a little bit better than them. It's all sinfulness. Because in God's sight, we are one. And when it comes down to it, we worship the one. And not things that may be representative of the one. We worship Him and Him alone. It's not the church, it's not the building, it's not what we do. We worship Him. So God was not to be represented by anything that we we could create or fashion. Why? Because He's a jealous God. I love the illustration in the book of Exodus written by Philip Graham Ryken. He used the illustration of love between a husband and wife. No husband who truly loves his wife would endure for a minute his wife in the arms of another man. It would make him insanely jealous if he loves her. You notice the phrase, if he loves her. I love my wife, and if some man tried to put his arms around her, I would hate to think of what would happen to him. Um, The bottom line is this. I love her. And because I love her, I don't want to see her in any other man's arms. And most of you men who love your wives feel the same way. And God definitely feels that way about his children. Because he loves us, we should not want to be in the arms of anything else. Pastor Mike and I were talking again this weekend. We had the opportunity to kind of just drive down some of those back roads around the cabin. And as we were driving down, we said, it's amazing how many people put their stock, their money, their treasure into things. You know, it's one thing for, one, for someone to have a $200,000 cabin up in the mountain that they go to three times a year. It's one thing to have a possession. But it's another thing for the possession to have you. And when we're a child of God, and we love Him as we ought to love Him, we may have things, but those things should not have us. And when those things have us, we are giving in to other idols. So He makes it very clear. God is a jealous God. And he's concerned about how we worship him. Notice God's warning back there in Exodus chapter 20. He doesn't just give us the command. He gives us the command with some stern warning. Verses 5 and 6. He says, you must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the father's sin to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Can I say just for a moment, there are a lot of people who take these verses completely out of context. I've met people who are business owners whose business did not go in who are Christians, and they have this idea that, well, I'm a Christian, and I have this business, so I'll just be successful. I wonder what my dad did that I'm not having success in my life. I've heard so many people say something to that effect. I wonder what my parents did that I don't have a blessing of God. Well, you are alive, and you're breathing air, and you have a bed to sleep on, and a roof over your head, and a car to drive. I think you've been blessed. Maybe not the way you want, but you've been blessed. Let's not misconstrue what he's saying here. Um, God shows his zeal to be glorified in our worship by pronouncing this curse, if you will, on those who break the command, and a blessing on those who observe it. And I think this, once again, is reiterated throughout Scripture. 
Old Testament and New. He says, I will listen to those who come to me, but I'll not listen to those who don't. He can't listen to you if you're not going to Him. He can't bless you if you're not walking with Him. But when you do, He will. God warns that the iniquity of the fathers will affect the third and fourth generation of children. But the word iniquity here is often translated twisted. Twisted. Think about this just for a moment. In other words, the twisting or perverting of real worship of God can cause God's judgment to come over our children. Once again, parents, we have a real opportunity to point our kids in the right direction. I understand we're not perfect. I understand that we don't walk without making mistakes. But if we're not faithful in following God, how in the world can you expect your children to do it? You must lead by example. You must walk the walk before you can expect them to walk the walk. And if you don't, don't expect it from them. We lead by example. And if we're willing to pervert God's truth, don't expect them to do anything different. I know sometimes when we say, make a statement like that, the thought comes to my mind. What if we've already lived our life? What if our kids are already gone? It's not too late to pray. It's not too late to change. It's never too late to start talking. It's never too late to start praying. There are times in our lives that God works in our lives in such a way that we make drastic changes, and it may be after our kids are gone. What do you do at that point? You live. You be an example. You talk. You pray. But don't stop. And don't just say, well, that's just the way it is. When we twist or pervert what real worship of God is, there's the possibility of God's judgment coming on us. And as fathers, we need to be careful of what we are passing on to our children. You see, God is not about being fair. God's not always fair. And I'm thankful for that, by the way. If God was fair, none of us would be here today. None of us. Look at 2 Kings once again. Chapter 10 this time. There's some real house cleaning that God has given us examples of here. 2 Kings chapter 10. Verse 1 this time. Since Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria, Jehu wrote the letters and sent them to Samaria to the rulers of Jezreel, to the elders and to the guardians of Ahab's sons, saying, When this letter arrives, since your master's sons are with you and you have chariots, horses, and forty, a fortified city and weaponry, select the most qualified of the master's sons. Set him on his father's throne and fight for your master's house. However, they were terrified and reasoned. Look, two kings couldn't stand against him. How can we? So the overseer of the palace, the overseer of the city, the elders and the guardians sent a message to Jehu. We are your servants and we will do whatever you tell us. We will not make anyone king. Do whatever you think is right. Then Jehu wrote a second letter saying, If you are on my side and if you obey me, bring me the heads of your master's sons at this time tomorrow at Jezreel. All seventy of the king's sons were being cared for by the city's prominent men. 
And when the letter came to them, they took the king's sons and slaughtered them all, seventy. Put their heads in baskets and sent them to Jehu at Jezreel. When the messenger came and told him they have brought the heads of the king's sons, the king said, Pile them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until morning. And the next morning when he went out and stood at the gate, he said to all the people, You are innocent. It was I who conspired against my master and killed him. But who struck down all these? Know then that not a word of the Lord spoke against the house of Ahab will fail. For the Lord has done what he promised through his servant Elijah. So Jehu killed all the remainder of the house of Ahab in Jezreel, all his great men, close friends, priests, leaving him no survivors. Then he set out and went on his way to Samaria. And on the way while he was at Bethekard of the shepherds, Jehu met the relatives of Ahaziah, king of Judah, and asked, Who are you? They answered, We are Ahaziah's relatives. We have come down to greet the king's sons and the queen, queen mother's sons. Then Jehu ordered, Take them alive. So they took them alive and then slaughtered them at the pit of Bethekad. Forty-two men, he didn't spare any of them. And when he left there, he found Jehonadab, son of Rechab, coming to meet him. He greeted him and then asked, Is your heart one with mine? As Jehonadab replied, Jehu said, it is, it, If it is, give me your hand. So he gave him his hand, and Jehu pulled him up into the chariot with him. Then he said, Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So he let him ride with him in the chariot. And when Jehu came to Samaria, he struck down all who remained from the house of Ahab in Samaria until he had annihilated his house, according to the word of the Lord spoken to Elijah. You think, wow, there's a house cleaning, if you will. He was serious about having one God. He was serious about not serving the false uh, idols and Baal and so forth. One thing you realize is this. Fair or unfair is irrelevant. Sometimes we think this idea that God has to be fair, I mean, it's irrelevant doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what I feel. It doesn't matter what I want. When God speaks, it's done. And you go through here and say, wow, why would God do such a thing? Because Ahab was wicked. And his family was wicked. And they had nothing but wicked intentions in their mind. And God says, I am jealous. God rewards generations for following Him. We see that in Genesis chapter 17. I'm not going to take the time to turn there right now, but if you would, take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts 17. And verse 16. Before you look at that, look up here. So he makes it very clear the first commandment. Don't worship any other gods beside me. And I think from the testimony of God's word in 2 Kings, I think he's fairly serious about that. So he's wanting us to serve the right God. And then he says, secondly, do not make unto thee any graven images. Nothing carved, nothing made of man's hand, nothing fashioned from the minds of mankind. Serve the right God the right way. Nothing else that needs to represent him. He's sufficient. He's jealous. All glory belongs to him. But the problem is that we live in a culture. And the culture is this. Acts 17, verse 16. 
While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was troubled within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. I used to wonder, as I was reading through this this week, I wonder if we could compare our city with his just a little bit. If we look around, do you see idols all around us? Do you? I, I, I think we see it. Maybe not so much as we see in some of the third world countries or maybe what we see in Africa or, or India or some of the other countries that have idols and stands on the sides of the roads. People can put their money in it in a box and somebody comes by at night and collects it or whatever. We may not have those kinds of quote-unquote idols, but man, we are a country filled with idols. It's amazing. We follow the the 401ks in the stock markets. It was big news a couple nights ago. Ended in the highest record it has done in years just the other night. I thought that might mean something if I had something in a 401k. Some of you feel the same way. But you know, it's amazing how we follow things. We follow people. We follow interests. We follow hobbies. We live life for other things. But I wonder, even in our pursuit of following the right things, I wonder, does God have first place? Not just do I believe that there's one God. Not just do I believe that He sent His Son to die on the cross. Not just do I believe the factual information of that He was buried and He rose again the third day, and yeah, that's true. But going beyond that, do I live my life pleasing Him? Not do I have Christianity symbols around my house. Verses on the walls. Stickers on the cars. T-shirts. That give all kinds of representation of what I believe. But do I truly live it out with my actions? No shortcuts. No shortcuts. You see in Second Chronicles that Ahaz for a while took down the shortcuts, the high places. They weren't as far as the temples were, so they would make makeshift places of worship that would be high up on a hill to kind of take the place of going way down there because that was too far to travel. And he said, no more shortcuts. And we take down the shortcuts. But then we rebuild them because serving God is sometimes hard. And sometimes it's commitment that's difficult. Now, some people look at following God as a bunch of do's and don'ts. And to that end, I say you're missing the point. Let me come back in closing with an illustration. I've said it before. We'll use it again when it applies. But there are certain things in my relationship with my wife that I will do and certain things that I will not do. Guys, as I said before, we should have got a manual, but we somehow we missed it. So we learn over the years that there are certain things that irritate, and we all know which buttons those are, and there are certain things that edify and encourage and build up. And we know what those are, too. But here's the thing in a relationship. Nobody said when I got married, thou shalt not throw your clothes on the floor. Thou shalt not put that dirty dish 
from the table and leave it there. Thou shalt not, you know, under all these rules. Probably should have, but we didn't get that book. Remember that. But I've learned over the years because picking up our clothes and putting them in the corner hamper helps, we do it. It encourages. And because we realize that helping out with the dishes, and guys, I don't like doing dishes anymore, but bringing it over there helps, we do it. See, it's not about what I always like and what I don't like. It's what's right. So it's not about the rules. Because if it were a rule, we could check the list off. Yep, did that, did that, did that. Yep, good, go. In a relationship, it's about doing what pleases the other person. And I just found out in my own life, I'm selfish. Unless you say you are, yeah, you are. We're all selfish. In our relationship with God, it's sometimes no different. We know what pleases Him we take shortcuts. We give God a little bit of our time. I mean, I can't give him, I, I mean, I gave him Sunday morning. What else do you want? Well, how about spending time with him reading his word and letter to you Monday through Saturday? Or talking to him because he wants to hear from you throughout the week. I mean, what else does he want? He wants a relationship. That's serving the right God the right way. It says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. It's all about being a doer of the word, not hearers only, lest we deceive ourselves. So it goes beyond, well, I believe this. Now let me live it out in my life. That's where we're at. No shortcuts. Even though Jehu came in there and destroyed all the prophets of even though he just wiped them all out and says, we're only going to serve one God. And then he builds these golden calves to represent that God. No. <laughs> Nothing represents God. He alone gets glory. He doesn't need anything else because nothing else can represent him. Coming to church cannot always represent him. Giving to a cause and a need at church or a project cannot represent him. He wants you and you alone. And then out of a heart of love, we do those things that bring glory to Him. Which may include going to church. And forsake not the assembling, as it says in Hebrews 10.25, we're to be faithful. But all these things only come and mean something after He has our heart. Before that doesn't matter. It's just a thing. It's just an action. He wants our heart.